Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, we're speaking with Kristen Epps. Dr. Epps is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Arkansas and is the author of Slavery on the Periphery, the Kansas-Missouri border in the antebellum and Civil War eras, which came out in 2016 and was just released in paperback this year with the University of Georgia Press. Kristen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we begin, as we usually do, by hearing about you? What's your background and what got you interested and involved with professional history in the first place? Well, I grew up in the West. I was actually born in Colorado and Western history is one of my first loves. I knew from a young age that I wanted to study the past. For many years, I actually thought I would be an archaeologist, but that sort of uh, shifted along the way somehow, and I went to college as a history major. I did my graduate work at the College of William and Mary, where I wrote a master's thesis on John Brown and radical abolitionism. And I then went to the University of Kansas, where I got my PhD focusing on the 19th century United States and Bleeding Kansas and the topic of our discussion today. And just as kind of a quick note, I have lived in both Kansas and Missouri. Hmm. My dad's family has actually been in Missouri since the 1820s. So I have connections to both sides of this border. Well, I have to ask in that case, during your research, have you come across any family documents or any references to any of your family at all? No, they lived in what we call the boot heel area. That's the other side of the state. Uh, okay. um, so I don't have relatives to my knowledge on the border that I discuss, but I did have ancestors who were Confederate guerrillas on the Arkansas-Missouri border. Oh, so just a different border. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then in that case, you kind of answered this, but let's go a little bit more in depth. What got you interested specifically in antebellum and Civil War era Kansas and Missouri? Absolutely. That's a great question. It was kind of a circuitous route for me. Uh, I mentioned before I'm not native to the region. Uh, I was born in Colorado, like I said, but I went to college in Kansas City. I went to William Jewell College, which is a little liberal arts college. And while I was there, I actually got really interested in medieval European history and religious history, which is where I was really focusing my attention. But when I got a little further into the major and I started looking for internship opportunities, you know, I wanted to get, you know, hands-on experience in the field. There really weren't a lot of opportunities that had to do with medieval European history and religious history. There weren't, you know, historic sites or things like that that I could intern at. So I applied for an archival internship at the Kansas Historical Society, which is in Topeka. And the project that I worked on there is something called Territorial Kansas Online. And it's a digitization project where they're digitizing primary sources about Kansas's territorial period. And this is the period from 1854 to 1861 that we call Bleeding Kansas. And uh, as I said, I was really a Europeanist. That was my thing at that particular moment. So I knew very little about Bleeding Kansas up to this point. But after reading a lot of primary and secondary sources during this internship, I just really fell in love with the topic. And while I was in the archives, I started to notice that primary sources were mentioning the presence of enslaved people in Kansas. But there was very little mention of that in most of the secondary sources that had been published to that point. There were references to slavery as an institution or references to it in sort of this abstract sense. 
Uh, but I found that really interesting. That was eye-opening for me. So I thought, well, why is that the case? Why are we not talking about these people who are living here and experiencing this sectional crisis in Kansas? So I thought that was interesting. I kind of filed it away in the back of my mind and thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I feel like that's the way a lot of really great books start. Is exactly. Coming across this, this kind of like rock that gets stuck in your shoe and you just can't shake it. Exactly. So... Uh, I graduate college. I, I go to William and Mary and work on that project. And then I, you know, fast forward a couple years. I'm in graduate school at the University of Kansas, and I'm looking at a dissertation project. And one of the reasons I went to KU was to, you know, work on bleeding Kansas kinds of topics. And like most projects, my dissertation, which is what became this book, started out as something a little bit different. Initially, it was more theoretical, kind of an intellectual history of the border. But this, as you put it, rock in my shoe, um, kind of kept came back to me. And what it morphed into was this social history and an attempt to really amplify the voices of the enslaved people who lived here. I had had this, you know, transformational moment in the archives, and I wanted to share that. And you know, historians know how integral slavery's expansion was to the coming of the Civil War, but I just kind of wanted to shout from the rooftops, but guys, slavery was already here. Hmm. Uh, there were enslaved people living and working in Kansas. If slavery is already in the West, how do things look different when we look at these various issues? I really wanted to demonstrate that slavery had existed in this region since the 18-teens and 20s. And that knowledge of that really changes the story, not just the story of Bleeding Kansas and the Civil War, but it really has the potential to shift your frame of reference if you're a scholar of slavery or a scholar of the West, because, of course, this was part of the West in the 19th century. So it's a sort of interesting path from being really interested in medieval European history and religion and then getting this internship. And it really is I, you know, I credit that internship with giving me this idea in the first place. So before we get too much into the content of the book and the arguments that you make within the book, I want to hear just a little bit about your sources, because you begin and really frame the introduction by telling us about a woman named Abzuga Adams. I think I'm pronouncing that right. That's my and, guess. <laughs> yeah. And she's a self-described cataloging machine. So who was she and what's she all about and why is she important to the story that you tell in the book? Well, that's a great question. The reason I started the book with her is because she was really instrumental in saving records that have to do with slavery. So Zoo, as I call her, we had we have very different approaches and motivations for what we're doing, but I'm so grateful for the fact that she saved these stories. So essentially, she was a librarian at the Kansas Historical Society in the 1890s, and she sent letters to various old timers and asked them to send her whatever info they could about slavery in Kansas. She was going to give a speech on the topic. And so she collected these, and these have been saved. These are stories that are often pretty short. They're uh, filtered through a white lens. She really didn't look for former slaves or the descendants of slaves to get their perspective. But it's a starting point, and that's particularly important in Kansas where the documentary footprint is so sparse. Uh, anyone studying slavery will struggle with finding enough sources that show the slave's perspective. I think that's that's true 
but it's doubly true here. It's a very small-scale system in Kansas. It only existed for a short time. So to give you a sense of the numbers, there was a census taken in 1855. And according to that census, it, it kind of depends on how you read it because the census is not easy to follow. But there were about 193 enslaved people in Kansas in 1855. Uh, when we look at other kinds of sources, we think the number might be closer to three or 400. But that's, that's a very small population. And so when it came to doing research, I, you know, I did use the evidence that Zoo compiled. I did recognize, of course, that she had very different motivations and very different perspectives on this. But I basically had to look at every type of historical source I could find in the hopes that I could get just a little snippet, a little bit of information from it. So in addition to the sources that Zoo uh, compiled, I also relied on newspapers, letters, published county histories, broadsides, all sorts of government records, so censuses, probate inventories, court cases, legislation, all sorts of things that were in the historical societies on the border, but also um, at the National Archives and at the Huntington Library in California. So I had a, a real challenge in front of me. There's only a handful, and I mean that quite literally, a, a handful of reminiscences left by former slaves in Kansas. And that meant I had to be very cognizant of you know, sussing out, trying to hear the voices of enslaved people when working with sources that were created by whites. It was a little easier to find sources about Missouri because the border counties that I study in Missouri had about 10,000 enslaved people in the 1850 census, which is definitely more than, you know, three or 400. But a lot of the sources on Missouri also focus on St. Louis or on central Missouri. There isn't a lot from western Missouri. So there was a really significant challenge for me to overcome in terms of finding sources, which I think is one of the reasons why historians haven't talked a lot about this topic, just because that documentary record is so is so sparse. Well, I will say just briefly that if that was a challenge, and it sounds like it was, it's one that you met head on because the book is very richly researched and almost every single paragraph seemingly has some sort of, of, of data point to, to back it up or a, a really remarkable quote in some way. So if that was a challenge, you, you, you did a good job. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the book then. And tell us first about the roots of slavery in the Kansas-Missouri border region. What were the early days of American settlement like? And what did slavery look like in the early 19th century in this part of North America? Well, chattel slavery first came to the region in the 18-teens and 1820s. Uh, there were enslaved people working in tobacco and hemp fields at Fort Osage, which uh, was a government factory uh, the uh, government factor was a man named George Sibley. He owned enslaved people. There were also enslaved people working in the fur trade, women working as domestics in the household of uh, Francois Choteau, uh, sometimes pronounced differently. <laughs> and he and his family were French fur traders, and they had posts all through what's now the Kansas City metro area. They're the some of the earliest settlers in Kansas City. 
There was another early fur trader named Joseph Robidoux who founded St. Joseph, Missouri. He used enslaved labor. So that's that's quite early, 18-teens and 1820s. And then Missouri entered the Union as a slave state in 1821, and that's when American immigration really picked up, and we start to see more and more slaves and slaveholders arriving. And there's also a slave trade that we can't forget about. So these enslaved people were integral, absolutely integral to the establishment of these border communities. You know, they're the ones planting and harvesting crops, tending to livestock, building houses and and buildings and cooking and cleaning and doing all of this work that's necessary to live on what was then a frontier. Now, of course, there are people who come who do not own slaves, uh, but this you know, the existence of slavery here is part of what is making this border flourish. And then we get into the 1830s and 1840s, and you start to see enslaved people in towns like Independence and Westport, and they're working as carpenters and blacksmiths, and they're working to outfit freighters on the Santa Fe Trail. They're working to supply families heading west on the Oregon Trail. So slavery existed in this region from very early on, which is often, I think, surprising to people. Now that's really more on the can or sorry, on the Missouri side of the border. On the other side, what is now Kansas, you have a little bit of a different narrative. You had indigenous tribes living there, the Osage, the Pawnee, and the Kansas. They did not practice chattel slavery. But during Indian removal, this is in the 1830s and 1840s, there are about 25 eastern tribes that were moved into this region. A lot of people know about the Cherokee and what's going on in what's now Oklahoma, but a lot of people don't realize that Kansas was actually the northern part of Indian territory. And some of those people brought slaves with them. So we have records of slaveholding among the Wyandotte, among the Shawnee and the Potawatomi, and possibly some others as well. There are also various organizations and churches that send missionaries out to Indian territory to quote unquote civilize these tribes. And some of those missionaries are slaveholders. So you have enslaved people working at missions and churches and schools. There are also military installations in Kansas, what's now Kansas, and there are enslaved people in Fort Leavenworth and Fort Scott who are the property of army officers and settlers and Indian agents. Uh, one thing I should mention is that this is what we call a small-scale system, meaning that a slaveholding household had fewer than 20 slaves. So we're not talking about large plantations. There are a few large plantations kind of scattered here and there. But generally, we're talking about households with two, three, maybe four, maybe more enslaved people. So this is a small-scale system that we see growing on this border. And small-scale slaveholding is a little bit of a different animal. Uh, my colleague Diane Moody-Burke has done a lot of work on this in Missouri. One of the things that small-scale slaveholding does is it allows slave owners to address diverse and fluctuating labor needs, which is really important when you're building you know, a community from scratch, essentially. And it's really common for enslaved people in these kinds of households to acquire very diverse skill sets. They're able to do a lot of different things. There's also some other markers of small-scale slaveholding that I just want to quickly mention. Uh, abroad marriages are common. 
These are marriages where the spouses live on different farms. If you are in a small-scale slaveholding community, that's pretty typical because you have to look sort of outside your household for a potential marriage partner. So abroad marriages are very common. Slave hiring is also very common on the border. It's, it's very likely that if you were an enslaved person that either you or a close relative was hired out at some point in your life. This is um, not unique to the border, but it's certainly very common in the border. So, you know, all of this is not to say that there weren't any similarities with life on a large plantation and life on a smaller farm, but it does suggest that small-scale slaveholding um, is is maybe something we need to consider. The plantation experience is not universal when you talk about slavery. So when slaveholders are thinking about what kind of slavery would quote-unquote work out West, small-scale slaveholding uh, is what they see as, as, as potential. And one of the things that I found really interesting when I was working on this project was how in these early years, this borderland is really a liminal space. You have Northerners, you have Southerners, you have Westerners, you have Native people, you have African-Americans, you know, you have people coming up from Santa Fe on the Santa Fe Trail. There's just all of this movement across the border. And it's really remarkably diverse ethnically and racially. Yeah, that's you, the the book does a good job of of painting a picture of this region as really a true borderland, especially in the 1820s and 1830s. And one of my big takeaways from the book was just how um, I guess you could say regionally contingent American slavery as an institution could be that it could develop in its own kind of way in places like the Kansas Missouri border region that is as you said a second ago very different from the kind of classic plantation experience that we hear a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the other crucial points that, that you make in the book is that to understand um, slavery and the experience of enslavement in the antebellum West means having to understand the centrality of mobility to this system and to the lives of the enslaved themselves. Why was mobility so important in this regard? One of the reasons I focused on mobility was because it seemed to me to be kind of the central thread that tied these features of small-scale slavery together. I really wanted to understand how enslaved people experienced this system, and it seemed like a way to understand that. So just a couple of quick examples. You know, abroad marriages, when you have to look outside of your own household for a marriage partner, that is dependent on you and or your spouse being able to travel, <laughs> right? Um, even yeah. if it's just across the street or if it's two miles away. And of course, these marriages, I should point out, are not legally recognized. Enslaved people could not legally marry, but they have typically some sort of religious ceremony and they you know, view themselves as husband and wife. So that's contingent on being able to travel. Uh, contingent on mobility. Being hired out means that you might spend a year on a farm 20 miles away. That's movement. That's mobility. That's a different environment. You know, these are all things where mobility is really central. And so it seemed, like I said, this kind of central thread. But even more so, you know, this is a period when we're talking about the antebellum years where Americans in general are just very highly mobile. You have swaths of people moving into this place. They're coming out west and they're building these communities from scratch. So it just seemed like mobility was this feature. But it's not just, you know, the way I frame it in the book, 
one of the themes is that really this is also about space, slaves and slaveholders grappling over control of space. So I wanted to look at these contested spaces and use that as a way to get at the different visions that slaves and slaveholders had for African-American mobility. So slaves saw opportunities for movement as often, you know, a means for independence, a means for resistance. That wasn't always the case, but there's an opportunity there. While for slave owners, slaves' mobility is something to be, you know, controlled, to be harnessed, to be used for their own purposes. And so there's these different ideas about what it means to use space, who has access to public spaces, and what that should look like. And I think a lot of that comes from what I said before about this being a really liminal space. You have northern, southern, western influences. I do describe it in the book as a borderland, and it's a borderland in kind of two ways, which is a little confusing maybe, but it's a borderland between the United States and these areas out west where you don't have Europe, uh, Euro- European or American settlement. If you're talking about those early years, you know, this is the borderland. This is the periphery of the United States. But it's also got this internal border that develops, as we will discuss later in the podcast, this internal border between Kansas and Missouri, where you start to see, as the sectional crisis deepens, this divide uh, between Kansas and Missouri, a space that once had been very uh, open and easy to travel across. There's a lot of movement in both directions. So the whole, uh, it's kind of a long answer to your question, but That's- this whole, you know, mobility moving space thing is is really, I think, important for us to understand if we really want to understand the experiences of the people who lived there. Yeah. So how did Missouri, by what processes did Missouri become, as you describe it in the book, Little Dixie by the mid-19th century? How did that happen? So Little Dixie is a term that's often been used to discuss counties in central Missouri along the Missouri River. Uh, The Missouri River runs right through the middle of the state. And these counties in central Missouri had the highest population of enslaved people. And so they've been sort of nicknamed Little Dixie. And one of the things I do in my book is I suggest that we need to, to bring that out a little bit westward and really look at some of these more populous counties on the border and think about how they're an extension of that society. So essentially... Slaveholders who came to the border were largely coming from upper south states. This would include Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland. And there were also immigrants from northern states. There were immigrants from the deep south. But a majority of these slaveholders on the border were from the upper south. And what they're doing is they're trying to transplant that upper south slaveholding culture into the west. And they have a lot of cultural capital. They have political power in Missouri. And so they're trying to do that. They're trying to extend slavery westward. And a lot of it is tied to this idea of progress, right? If you are moving westward as a slaveholder, you're going to bring enslaved people with you because that's how you're going to make it. So they don't see any you know, reason not to expand slavery into the West. It can only be a good thing from a slaveholder's perspective. So, you know, if we kind of want to use the framework that Ira Berlin does, where we think about societies with slaves and slave societies, what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a slave society out West. And so they're 
passing laws or creating laws that will codify slavery. They're participating in the interstate slave trade. They're fostering ties with tobacco and hemp markets back east. You know, they're really just doing everything they can to recreate their upper south world. But of course, at every turn, these attempts are met with resistance from the people whose labor is running these enterprises. So enslaved people are working to create their own worlds in this in this little Dixie. So I am not particularly well read on the bleeding Kansas crisis, but I feel like much of the history that I have read on that period either takes one of two texts, either like a top-down, more political view of the crisis, or it's stories of particularly prominent anti-slavery whites, such as people like John Brown. You, however, provide a lot of remarkable history from a different perspective, from the perspective of enslaved men and women in the Missouri-Kansas border region. So can you give us a brief overview of what Bleeding Kansas was and how it affected the lives of both free and enslaved African Americans in the region? Definitely. Well, in short, Kansas Territory was created in 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This took this northern part of what had been the Louisiana Purchase, and it separated it into two sections, the northern part being Nebraska Territory and the southern part being Kansas Territory. Now, Instead of having Congress decide whether or not Kansas and Nebraska would become slave states or free states once they enter the Union, the decision would be left to the voters of each territory. This is something called popular sovereignty. And I think in some respects, kind of on the surface, it sounds rather smart and very democratic. You know, let the people actually living there decide what they want. But in Kansas, its implementation was absolute chaos. So Kansas officially opened to white settlement in 1854. You might recall from a few minutes ago that originally it was uh, settled by immigrant Indians mm -hmm. who are going to be expelled and sign treaties and, and you know dispossessed. So both white Northerners and white Southerners, once it opens to white settlement, they see an opportunity there. So whichever side settled Kansas and had the majority of voters come statehood, that's the side that would, would count. Uh, this would change the balance in the Senate between free states and slave states. So what you have is essentially a race to populate the territory. Who can get there first? Make sure you have enough of your people. You vote. You decide the future of the territory. So what happens is this makes immigration into Kansas a very political act. So even if you are not a particularly political person, you're just coming because there's cheap land and opportunity, your immigration now has a political meaning. <laughs> and a lot of Missourians who are, you know, just right nearby, they're eager to immigrate, but suddenly this border that had been very fluid before is very politicized. So what happens is what we call bleeding Kansas. And I could go on for an hour about it, but the short is there's a lot of violence. You have rampant voter fraud. There are, for a time, two governments trying to control the territory, although only one of them is actually officially recognized by the federal government. There's just chaos, and all of this is being widely reported in both southern and northern newspapers. So it's a very divisive, very partisan period in our, in our history, and it's all revolving around whether or not slavery should be allowed in Kansas. 
So that's that that traditional story from the political perspective. But you'll notice that nowhere in there did I mention enslaved people as people. In that narrative, they exist in the abstract. They're objects of white discourse. They don't have voices. And that's why I wrote the book to try to do my small part in changing that narrative. So all of this political unrest had a lot of implications for enslaved people. And for one, it's it's a distraction. It's time consuming <laughs> to, hmm. uh, you know, constantly be fighting and drilling your militia and these various things. And so some people in Kansas who are slaves and also enslaved people in Missouri, they take advantage of that distraction. They felt emboldened. They're willing to escape or resist violently. You know, they're very aware of what's happening. And sometimes they had assistance from sympathetic whites. There are abolitionists that move to Kansas, but largely they're making these decisions about how to resist, you know, independently on their own. And it's very difficult to track and and count slave escapes. It's, it's, pretty much impossible to get a really good number. But it would seem from the evidence that we have that the number of fugitives in this period uh, increased pretty dramatically. But there are also downsides to all of this violence and unrest can have some repercussions. So in Missouri, there are records of town ordinances that are, that start to be enforced or that are passed during this period. Things establishing curfews, things requiring slaves to travel with passes, all of these sorts of things come from a fear of slave escapes. And so there are repercussions for Missouri slaves that come out of all of this, you know, strife and, and violence. So Missouri is in sort of a strange position as we enter the Civil War period because mm -hmm. they remain a slave state. Um, they don't secede from the Union, however, um, even after the beginning of the Civil War. And you describe the institution in the border region as starting to collapse toward the end of the Bleeding Kansas Crisis. So tell us about how slavery first began to wither in Kansas and then what it meant to have a free soil, free soil excuse me, state adjacent to um, enslaved individuals still living in Missouri after the war begins. So slavery was not really viable in Kansas by about 1857 or 1858. The, the situation looked pretty different at that point than it did when the territory opened in 1854. So by 1857 or 1858, northern immigration had really outpaced southern immigration. So you have a lot more northerners moving into the territory uh, which means that I think many folks saw the writing on the wall and they knew that it was likely that Kansas was going to become a free state based on that that sorry popular sovereignty uh, doctrine that I mentioned before. There's also some uh, fluctuations going on because the pro-slavery faction, which had controlled the territorial government, was kind of losing its grip. So it becomes, Kansas becomes more inhospitable to slaveholding interests. And I think some of that also comes from the fact that it's going through a kind of normal transition process. You know, people are focused on building their life. They're setting up schools and churches and businesses. And there are periodic episodes in the late 1850s where these partisan tensions heat back up. But I think people were trying to move on. You know, you've, you've, you've got to build your house. You've got, you know, you've got to take care of these things. And you also have to consider the work of enslaved people 
in the unraveling of the system. There were a lot of slave slave escapes, opportunities for resistance. So keeping slaves in Kansas became a very risky endeavor. So slaveholders might move away. They might free their slaves. We have some, some cases of that. Or they might sell their slaves away. So by the time we get to the 1860 census, there are two enslaved people recorded in Kansas. Now, again, it could be a little higher. It could be 10. It could be 15. But that's the official record. So, uh, you know, these slave escapes and what we commonly, you might have, you know, heard the term Underground Railroad used, those are networks that really thrive on a uh, covert communication. And as historians of slavery know, there's a lot of covert communication going on among enslaved people. And in this region, that mobility that I've mentioned before plays a role in this because it's not terribly hard to visit the farm next door and share information about, well, who's left recently? Do you know which route they took? These kinds of things. So there's a lot of talk about politics. There's a lot of talk about, you know, abolitionists moving into the territory and slaves are hearing that. And they're listening carefully and they're sharing that with each other. So they're really quite aware of the implications of what it means uh, when you have this idea of popular sovereignty and how that can play out to their benefit. You describe the years of the Civil War itself as uh, unlike the situation on any other border between a free state and a slave state. What made this border region so unique during the four years of the Civil War? I think, you know, honestly, a a lot of it has to do with the fact that this bleeding Kansas period, this territorial period, had really been its own, you know, miniature civil war. You have people fighting each other over the issue of slavery. And I do mean that quite literally. There are militias drilling and and practicing (laughs) and people shooting at each other. And so it's this own, it's sort of its own civil war. And so people who'd been in the region, they have a history of letting political and ideological animosities, you know, devolve into violence. So that's, I think, you know, an important context. So both states did remain in the Union. Missouri was still a slave state, however, but it was very deeply divided in its loyalties. Some Missourians were very proud secessionists, but others, including some slaveholders, were unionists. They were pro-union. And Kansas is a little bit different. There really isn't a lot of of secessionist sentiment in Kansas. It's really overwhelmingly pro-union. Kansas had entered the Union in 1861 as a free state. So it makes sense given the history and given the fact that there still is this, this very clear dividing line between Kansas and Missouri. It makes sense that those kind of old animosities are going to rear up again. And you also describe the the period of the Civil War as a chaotic and harrowing time, uh, both in Kansas, but particularly in Missouri. Why was this the case? And how did enslaved people themselves make use often of this chaos to take freedom for themselves? Well, Missouri saw a lot of guerrilla warfare in the war. And a lot of that comes from those divided loyalties of its residents. And it actually, uh, one of the historians that I cite in the book 
has has calculated that it actually ranks third among all of the states in terms of the amount of military activity within its borders. So there's a lot of guerrilla violence. As I said before, some Missourians are very pro-Confederate, and if they don't join the army, they might still do everything they can to thwart the Union's war effort. And this is not just men. This is also white women as well. So these guerrillas are active all over the state, but on this border in particular, they have kind of easy targets across the way in free Kansas. Uh, There's a lot of... um, challenges, there are a lot of challenges that civilians in Missouri face because all of this guerrilla action puts a target on the guerrillas' backs, but it also puts a target on the backs of their families. So civilians in the border, white civilians on the Missouri side, particularly those that have ties to guerrillas, they really suffer during the war. Now, uh, on the Kansas side, Kansans are on high alert <laughs> because the situation in Missouri is so volatile. They do their fair share of plundering and skirmishing. There weren't many battles on the border, but in Kansas, there's this sort of constant state of fear about, well, what will happen if the Confederacy invades us? What will happen uh, if Missourians come over? And that's not unfounded because there's this incident called Quantrill's Raid, which takes place in Lawrence in 1863. And uh, William Quantrill was a Confederate guerrilla. He and his men came over to Lawrence, a sort of notorious abolitionist town, and they massacred almost 200 men and boys, most of them being civilians. So it's not an irrational fear on the part of Kansans. Now, for the enslaved people, you know, this instability and violence is not without its hazards, but it opened up, you know, proverbial doors for enslaved people. So just as they did elsewhere in the South, enslaved people take advantage of this. They flock to Union regiments that are stationed on the border. They flee to towns that they think might be friendly, places like Fort Scott and Leavenworth. And they're really agents of their own emancipation. They don't sort of sit and wait around to be rescued. They see that there is an opportunity and they they take it. Um, Also, one thing I wanted to note was that Kansas leads the way in forming black regiments. The first Kansas colored was actually the first black regiment to see action during the Civil War. They saw action Uh, in a number of places, but first at the Battle of Island Mound, which took place in October of 1862 in Missouri. And that's often, I think, something that people kind of don't hear about. So this was a unit composed largely of men from the border. And that's also true of the second Kansas colored. There's also an artillery battery at Fort Leavenworth. They don't really see action, but it had all black officers, which was kind of unusual during the Civil War. So it's it's really difficult to estimate exactly how many enslaved people are uh, coming to Kansas from Missouri. It's, it's, it's sometimes possible through pension records and enlistment records and things like that to tell where these men who served came from. But there's a pretty significant, I feel safe in saying, a pretty significant movement of people out of Missouri and into Kansas during the war. And these enslaved men that I mentioned before who are fighting in these regiments, you know, they're taking this opportunity to fight for their freedom. 
finally then, tell us briefly about what the region looked like during Reconstruction. Because as you point out in the book, Missouri did not secede from the Union, thus not making it subject to the various plans for Reconstruction that develop and are put into action over the course of the 1860s and 1870s. So what did this mean for the border region and particularly for the freedmen and freedwomen who lived there? Well, you're correct. Uh, Missouri did not undergo formal Reconstruction, although it faces many of the same challenges that we see arise if we look at states that did undergo Reconstruction. There is still a, a process of transitioning from a slave society to a society founded on free labor, and that's a really difficult undertaking. Now, there's no military occupation like you see uh, in places like Arkansas, just a bit further south. There's no you know, redistribution of land. The Freedmen's Bureau has just a very small presence on the border. But you know, again, that transition from slave labor to free labor is going to be quite challenging no matter where you are. And of course, you know, slavery's outlawed, but that does not mean that white supremacy disappeared. <laughs> so African-Americans who are living on the border, they had to deal with retaliation from former Confederates with discriminatory labor policies, with prejudices and stereotypes, and eventually, of course, the rise of Jim Crow segregation. And they're working hard to fight for citizenship. They're working to vote, to fight for voting rights. So it's not the same as Reconstruction in this period in, you know, elsewhere, but enslaved people's experiences were in some ways not that dissimilar. And one of the things that carried over from the antebellum years was this importance of mobility in shaping their everyday lives. So freed people, and this is true of freed people everywhere, not just on this border, they set out to reunite with long lost family. They're moving to try to find a, a job that will pay them you know, better. Some of them remain in the region, but others move away. So when I did research at the National Archives, I found pension records of men who had fought with these black regiments. And there were black regiments from Missouri as well that I didn't mention before. And these men end up in Colorado and California and these various places out west. So Missouri has some challenges. Now, Kansas was already a free state, as I mentioned. It entered the Union in January of 1861. So the process of remaking slavery there, or sorry, of remaking society there was not as, as onerous or perhaps as complicated, but there's still this challenge of white supremacy being alive and well. There's also a challenge for Kansans in terms of how to address the flood of exodusters who arrive in the 1870s. So the exodus is this movement of freed people out of the South in the 1870s. And essentially, these people had heard about Kansas. Maybe they'd even heard about John Brown. They'd heard about the Underground Railroad. And as the situation in Southern states deteriorates, as we get further into the 1870s, they see Kansas as a haven. And so these exodusters, as we call them, they come by the thousands and they come into Kansas. Some stay uh, in the Missouri side of what's now Kansas City, but many of them come into Kansas and there's a lot of discussion about, well, how do we aid these people? How do we feed these people? How do we employ these people? How is this going to work? Uh, this is where we get, uh, for instance, the community of Nicodemus, which is in western Kansas. And that's really, I would say, the most successful all-black settlement in the West. 
So Kansas has its challenges, but they do, again, look a little bit different than the challenges that Missourians, white or black, are facing. So this is a, a fascinating and, and very rich book that I think could, could interest anybody with any sort of, of interest in the history of race and slavery in 19th century America. But I'm curious if there was one takeaway that you hope that readers would, would come away from your book with, what would it be? That's a great question. I think really it comes down to the fact that enslaved people were not marginal to this story. And I can only do my small part to rectify these these sort of myths that we've seen. But I really want readers of the book and listeners today to understand that we need to understand the entire story, not just kind of the story that we've often been fed. And it's not just about adding more people to the story, like, oh, well, we'll just talk about African-Americans now. It's really about how that can can shift your entire perspective and the questions you ask. Because if you recognize that slavery was already making its way into the West, that has the potential to really change the way you view westward expansion, the way you view the sectional crisis, all of these different issues. So now that the book has been out for a couple years, um, have you been working on anything since then? Do you have a second project in mind coming down the pike at all? Yeah, I have a a few different things that are on the table right now. Uh, since publishing the book, I published an article in the journal Kansas History about a man named Charlie Fisher. And Fisher, this story is absolutely fascinating. He was a black man who was abducted in Leavenworth in 1859 under the claim that he was a fugitive slave. He escapes his abductors. His abductors are then put on trial for kidnapping um, it's a very complicated case. His alleged owner comes up to the territory. Uh, he was not from this area and, you know, is trying to claim uh, Charlie Fisher. And then he sues abolitionists who were, I mean, it's this very complicated case. There's all of this civil and criminal stuff uh, going on that resulted from this. It's really fascinating. And it got me thinking quite a lot about the Fugitive Slave Law and how it was enforced in the West. And I think that it looks different than the way that fugitive cases look back East. So uh, I haven't worked this up into a proposal or anything, but that's something that I really kind of want to explore. There's also an article in the works on anti-abolitionist violence, looking at how pro-slavery Missourians used their definition of law and order to crack down on dissenting views. And that term law and order is kind of circulating <laughs> through uh, American culture right now. And I think it's interesting to look at how Missourians were using this idea of creating a law and order community to crack down on abolitionists and, and other dissenting views. So I don't have a second book project totally lined up, but those are kind of a few of the ideas that I'm bouncing around. That question of, of law and order, I had no idea that that phrase went as far back as the 19th century. I usually associate it more with kind of Nixonian politics of the mid-20th century. That's, uh, that that kind of caught my interest right away. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I wrote a blog post uh, for the Journal of the Civil War era that talks about it a little bit, hmm. but it's, you know, brief, maybe like a thousand words or so. And there's just a lot going on in the Bleeding Kansas period that gives people a reason to talk about law and order because you have 
voter fraud and unrest and murders and kidnappings. And so it's kind of this great uh, uh, microcosm of these issues. And you're absolutely right. It's it's a 19th century term, uh, maybe even further back than that, but for sure, at least it's it's used in the 1850s. Well, those both sound like great projects, Thanks. and I look forward to tracking their progress. Thank you. Kristen Epps is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Arkansas, and her recent book is Slavery on the Periphery, the Kansas-Missouri Border in the Antebellum and Civil War Eras, which came out in 2016 and was just recently released in paperback from the University of Georgia Press. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. 